Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to begin reading tonight at verse 12. So if you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, uh, we'll begin reading tonight at verse 12. Our initial reading will be down to verse 17, and we will make it into chapter 4 by the time we're done tonight, the Lord willing. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, if you've got it, say Amen. Amen. Me too. This is what it says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Tonight I've given the message the title, A New Way for the New Life. A New Way for the New Life. You may be seated. Now last, last week we began looking at living the new life in Christ. In this first portion of Colossians chapter 3, we began looking at living the new life in Christ. This week we're looking at the new way for the new life. Now, with the new life, of course, came the total change of heart and mind. There is a total change of heart and mind. We talked about how the old man is dead and the new man is alive in Christ. Uh, We were instructed that we're to seek those things which are above. Remember, we talked about seeking the things which are above and leaving the things of the old life behind and letting go of those so that we could, with both hands, reach forward to the prize of the high calling of Christ. We were told to put off the old man, is what he said, like you would take off a garment to put off the old man along with his sins, and he talked extensively about those different sins last week, and uh, that we're to put off the old garment, and not only that, but we're to put something on. You know, you want to put something on if you take something off, and so he said, put off the old man and put on the new, and he instructed that we're to cast that away like a dirty garment, like something that's filthy. Our old life, we're to cast that away like you would take off a filthy a shirt or something and you cast it away. Now, not only that, but you remember that we talked about how the grave clothes have to come off. Remember, I gave the illustration of Lazarus, how he was bound, and the grave clothes needed to come off so that he could have the freedom in Christ in the new life that he had. And so today, uh, since we seen what must be cast off last week, you know, he talked about the sins, those egregious sins that he talked about in those littler sins that are actually big sins. They all must be dealt with. Well, last week he talked about what we take off. This week we're going to put something on. So uh, you come to a good week, we're going to put something on. As I was studying this message, I remember uh, a few years back, uh, several years back now, I'm getting old now that I think about it, but Uh, When we were down on the square, I was nine or ten, and I've told this story before, but mom was trying to get all the kids rounded up in the house, and you know, it's on a Sunday morning trying to get to church on time. That's quite a a task when you got a house full of kids, and I remember her saying, come on, come on, we got to get to church. We're going to be late. We're going to be late, and I jumped out of bed, and I put on my coat the wintertime, and I ran out and got in the car, and we got down to church, and she's up there on the piano, and I went to take my coat off, and when I unzipped it, I realized I had had no shirt on. <laughs> so I go up to mom and say, mom, I ain't got no clothes on. She said, you keep that coat on. You know how mom, she, you know, she said, you wear that the whole time. Don't you take your coat off. Well, 
When we, when we take something off, we want to have something that we can put on. That's, I'm glad that in Jesus we have something to put on, right? So that's what we're talking about tonight. Now, I want to begin by saying the new man has been touched by grace. Paul gives us the analogy of the old man and the new man. So when I say the new man, ladies, you're included. I'm just using the same terminology that Paul is using. The old man, the old life, the old things. I'm talking about the new man that we have in Christ. So every Everybody's in on this, so don't think you're out of it. Uh, I want to start by saying the new man has been touched by grace. Look at verse 12 again. Put on, therefore, because we've taken all these other things off, the old life, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, uh, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. Now, the fact that we are new creatures in Christ is a miracle in itself. Did you know that the new birth, being born again, is a miracle in itself? If you want to see a miracle today, watch somebody be born again, and you're going to see it right before your eyes, a miracle. They happen every day. God is still saving people and still changing lives. But the fact of the new birth, it really is a miracle. It's a work of God through Christ. Being born again was not something we did by ourselves. It was a work of God through Christ. Jesus did everything. All we had to do was receive it. We did our part, which was the sinning. God did his part, which was the saving. That's what it comes down to. We did our part. He did his. Ours was the sinning. His is the saving. So uh, the moment that you trusted in Christ, in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are what's known as the elect. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to just kind of uh, graze over the top of it. There's a lot of discussion about that, and uh, I'm just going to say this. If you wonder if you're the elect or not, when you come to Jesus Christ, you're the elect. When you trust Jesus Christ in the gospel and you're born again, you're one of the elect. It's as simple as that. Whenever you come to Jesus and you give your life to him and he changes you, you're one of God's elect. D.L. Moody said it like this, the whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. So there you go. That's high theology for you right there. But as a new creature in Christ, you have this new garment. You are a new man. You have the new garment. So I want you to know not only are we touched by grace, but we're the work of God. We are the work of God. Somebody might say to you, well, you're a real piece of work, and you can say, a piece of work of God. God's still working on me, amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're the work of God's hands. We've been touched by grace. We have the new life. We're the work of God's own hands. Now, since he began that work in us, he's going to what? He's going to perform the work in us. God doesn't start something in your life and then say, well, I saved you. Now it's up to you to do the rest. Good luck, buddy. Hope it works out. That's not how God does things. When God starts something in your life, he's going to perform it because we are his workmanship. We are the work of God's own hands uh, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, meaning that God is going to do a work in our life that he has somewhere for us to go. It's unto good works. It's to be more and more like Jesus. And so as he begins to do this work, it's going to happen not by our power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. The power of the Holy Spirit living in us. I'm reminded of the verse in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. Listen, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You could say it like this, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. Now, this isn't talking about a progressive salvation that eventually you become. You're, when you're saved, you're saved that moment. That happens right then. But contained within this verse says God has made a way that we can be sons, but not only that, but grow into full, mature children of God. And that's what God is going to be working in our lives. He is working something in us. He is moving us in a direction. He's moving us away from our old 
wildlife and he's moving us more and more to be like Christ. You follow me so far? So the new man is touched by grace. We're the work of God's own hand. And not only that, but we're also clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm glad that we have a covering, amen? Look back at verses 9 and 10 of this chapter 3. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So notice that that is a past tense there. It says, in Christ we have put off the old man and we have put on the new man. It's something that has happened. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he has made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus took our punishment, as you know, on the cross. You think of Adam and, and Eve in the garden when they sinned and they covered themselves with the fig leaves. And you know, God came looking for them and, and that was not a sufficient covering. We needed something greater than that. Today, as children of God, having trusted in Christ, we have the covering that we need. We have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. Because Jesus took our place on the cross, of course, we've learned previously that we were reconciled to God. We were joined to him, and God sees Jesus in us. God sees us in Jesus. Whenever God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Why? Because we're in him, and he's in us. So we have that covering in Christ Jesus. When God looks at us, it's a good thing that he sees Jesus because uh, I sure don't want him looking too close at me. I want to trust Jesus completely, amen? Uh, Vernon McGee said it like this, he took my hell down here so that I might have his heaven up yonder. That's a good way to say it. Jesus took our hell down here so that we could have his heaven up yonder. So we know the new man is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, and it says that we are renewed in the knowledge of him. That means that this new man is hungry for the things of God. That means the new man wants more of God. That means the new person in Christ Jesus wants more and more. And not only that, we're renewed in, in knowledge after him. That means that we no longer are looking so much like the old man, the Adam, the old Adam that fell back in the garden, and we're becoming more and more like like the new man, the last Adam, which is Jesus. So it's, a, it's this whole thing that he's, he's covering us with his righteousness, with the work of his hands, and he's still doing a work in us, and he's moving us from, from here, and he's taking us to there, ultimately meaning up there with him. There's a work that God's doing in your life. I promise you, if you've come to Christ, there's a work that God is daily doing in your life. So as we walk with God, we should look, what, less and less like the old Adam and more and more like the last Adam, which is Jesus. That's what's happening. So we, I want you to think about it like this, because this is important as we get into the remainder of this chapter. I want you to think about the things that are presently true about us since we are born-again believers in Christ, things that are presently true. Well, we have been born again, right? We are children of God. We are the work of God's own hands. We are created in Christ unto good works. We're going somewhere. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are blood-bought. We are reconciled, Holy Ghost-filled, children of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the old man is dead, and we are alive in Christ. We are. Now, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we now have to live and practice what we are in position. 
Now we are children of God. Now we are sons of God. Now we are seated with him in heavenly places. Now we are all these things. We are saved. We do have the promise of the inheritance. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're on our way to that place in glory that Jesus said that he would take us to. We have those things, but we're here. And so what he's saying is you need to begin to live uh, like you already are in position. You need to begin to live your life and practice what you are in position. Let me twist your brain. We are, we must become what we are. How about that? We must become what we already are. And so how is that going to happen? It's only gonna happen by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's called sanctification. It's where you're born again and now God is working things in and out of your life by his spirit, conforming you more and more and more to the image of his dear son, Jesus. He's getting the old Adam out of you and he's getting the last Adam to be through and through on the inside and the outside. He wants you to look like Jesus, ultimately will be changed and will be just like Jesus. That's what's happening on the here and now. So with that in mind, I want you to know this. The new man has a new attitude, a new attitude. Let's look again at verse 12. Notice the, the phrases that he says, the last part of it. Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. When you hear the words, bowels of mercy, that is a strange statement to us these days, isn't it? Sounds odd. What do you mean by that? Are we talking about your innards or what? I mean, he's <laughs> what he's talking about is the deep-seated emotions. So it's what you might say, um, it's what you might say, a heart of compassion. That makes a little more sense to you. It's, a, it's an old phrase of saying, the very depths of my soul, I moved in the very depths of my soul. That's kind of what he's saying, a heart of compassion. You think about Jesus when he saw the multitudes, and the Bible says he was moved with compassion, right? He was moved when he seen the hurting and the sick and, and the different ones like that. He was moved. That's what you would call, uh, that's what you would call that bowels of mercy or a heart of compassion. And so God wants us to have that heart of compassion like Jesus. When we see the hurting, when we see the hungry and the homeless and the downcast, the downtrodden, he wants us to be moved in the very depths of our soul just like Jesus. So we, we need to be looking to see, Lord, do I have this part of the new man? Am I moved when I see people in, in need? Am I moved when I see the things going on in the world? Not only that, he talks about kindness. Now, this is gentleness. This is being helpful towards others. It, it also carries the idea with it of, of um, you know, as, as you get older, you're not quite as rambunctious as you used to be. I think of my old dog when he was little, he was into everything. He was crazy and wild, but as he got older, he was really pretty mellow. He became gentle. That's the idea, is that we become gentle towards people. We used to be pretty rambunctious. We maybe was on edge, but now we're becoming more gentle in Christ. That's kindness. He talks about humbleness of mind. Of course, that's lowliness of mind. That's not thinking too highly of oneself. Meekness. Now, you hear meekness and you think weakness, but that's not what it means. Meekness is not weakness. This is what it is. It is strength under control. Meaning you may have the power to dominate or manipulate or coerce or all these other things, but you don't do it. You keep your power under control. That's what it is. It's strength under control. It, it is related to gentleness. And then he talks about long-suffering. This would be the opposite of short-suffering, I guess, right? <laughs> well, that makes sense. Well, long-suffering, it's, it's about patience. It's about self-restraint. You know, if somebody's poking you over and over and over again. It means you can bear it. You're not gonna snap on them. You're not short-fused. You're not gonna blow your top on them. It's the opposite of anger. 
And it endures with hope that there's coming relief. You know, last week we talked about that we should cultivate things in our life that are opposed to the things that we fight against, right? Well, one of those things, if you struggle with anger and you struggle with uh, losing your, your top all the time, God may begin working into you some long suffering. He might begin to say, well, this might be what you need to help work on that issue with some patience, some long suffering suffering. The medicine isn't always good, but these are things that he works into our lives. So the Spirit of God is working these things into us, the things of the new man, because he's conforming us to the image of his son. He wants us to be like Jesus, and we've got a long ways to go, but he's going to keep on working on us. And the Spirit of God working in us is going to bring these things to pass. Amen? Now, I want you to know this also, that the changed life is evidence of the work of grace in you. A changed life is evidence of the work of grace in you. It's evidence of the fact that God is working in you. All of these things that we're talking about are really fruits of the Spirit of God working inside of you. You know, over in Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's uh, Galatians chapter 5. Let me read those to you, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So you see the same vein of talk there. He's showing these things that God is working into you are fruits of the Spirit working in you. And what's going to happen is those things are going to manifest themselves outwardly in your life. As God is working inside of you, the Holy Spirit, again, is working things in you and out of you. Things that shouldn't be there, he's going to move out of you. Things that should be there, he's going to work in into you, and as this happens, you're going to begin to see a change, and it's going to happen from the inside out. You're going to see that God is doing something in you. You're going to have evidences of the fruits of the Spirit working in you. You're going to see these things begin happening in your life. That's what he's talking about. God is working in you to work new things in you, to work old things out of you, and to get you on track. Does that make sense? So that's what he's doing in you. He's going to change you from the inside out. And that's a marvelous thing. I was uh, actually uh, having uh, some coffee with a friend who's known me for several years just a couple days ago. And, uh, and he hasn't seen me for several years since I've really been serving the Lord and truly gave my life to the Lord. And I was there having coffee with him and he said something uh, to me. He said, I, I feel like I've met someone new. That's what he told me. He said, I feel like I've met someone new and, and I'm, he, like I'm, I'm getting to know you all over again, but for the first time. And I said, I take that as a very great compliment. Because he was telling me, I don't recognize you even though I know you. Because he hadn't seen me all these years, he said, he said I see something different. And, and I said, that is a blessing. And you know what that said to me? God working in me, working things out of me, so that you may see that the fruits of the Spirit are there, that God is working in me doing something. I, 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 I'm, I'm thrilled to see that that is the testimony that someone else would bring to me about me, and I thank God for it. That's what God will do. That's what God can do. He can change you, and he will. So he's going to change you from the inside out, and it's going to be apparent. You show me someone that has no change in their life, that acts the same way as they always have. Uh, there's nothing new, the same old person they've always been, and I'll show you a person that's never been born again. Something that's the same as he always has been is not something new. Something new is something different. And if there's no change, then the Spirit of God is not working in that person. It will be evident. Not only that, the new man is a man of forgiveness and mercy. This new person is, a, is someone who forgives and is merciful. Verse 13, forbearing one another 
and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Look at the first phrase, forbearing one another. Now, not, e- not everyone is easy to get along with. In every family, in every, in every employee, employer, uh, work situation, in every church even, no matter where you go, there's always going to be some kind of friction somewhere, right? There's always going to be personality clashes. There's always going to be disagreements. There's always going to be something that just grinds on you and say, man, I can't stand it when those people do that, or I can't stand it, it's driving me crazy. And what God says is, he says, I'm going to give you grace for bearing these people. That's what he's saying. God will give you grace for bearing these situations. God will give you grace that you can endure and that you can deal with these situations in your life. We, all, we want to bristle. We want to we let them have it. But God says, I'm going to give you grace for bearing this stuff. Amen? I know that's a play on words, but it's true. He gives us grace for bearing what we have to deal with. His grace is sufficient. Now, not only that, but uh, it's a a thing about uh, forgiveness. He's given us a standard of forgiveness, the standard of forgiveness, and it's a very high one. It's like Jesus, a very high standard. So he talks about forbearing, and now he gives us a standard of forgiveness, which is Jesus. Look again at verse 13. Forgiving one another... If any man have a quarrel or a dispute or an issue against you or they've offended you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, there are real offenses that take place. There are real hurts that are inflicted by people. There are real wounds that happen. There are deep wounds that people may uh, inflict on you. There, there are legitimate offenses. So let me start by saying that there are legitimate offenses. And you may well have the right to feel hurt, to be wounded. But the standard that the new man is to live by is one of forgiveness. And it gives us the standard of forgiveness the way Christ forgives. So before we continue in a, in a bitterness towards someone or, uh, or a, in some cases a hatred, first of all, consider that Christ has forgiven you. First of all, consider that Christ has forgiven you. And when you compare the offense that they have committed against you to the debt that you owed God and the fact that it cost Jesus his very life to pay for the offense that you committed against God, it will change how you're thinking about the person who offended you. The debt we incurred against God cost Jesus his life. So when you look at it, Jesus gave a whole parable about that over in Matthew chapter 18. I'm not gonna read it for you tonight, but uh, it's verses 21 through 35, and it's good to read that. But he talks about a man that had debt, an extreme amount of debt that he couldn't pay in his whole lifetime. And the king called the debt in and said, it's time to pay. And he begged and said, oh, have mercy on me. And the king forgave all the debt and said, you're free to go. But what did that man do? He turned around and he went out and found somebody that owed him just a little bit. And the Bible says he took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. And he said, oh, have mercy on me. You know, it became a public spectacle. Everybody's seen it. This bitterness in his heart. Everybody's seen it. He was out there choking a guy. And when they seen it, they went to the king and they said, hey, the man you forgave He just went out there and shook this guy down and grabbed him by the throat and demanded, and he wouldn't show him any kind of mercy. And that made the king very, very angry. He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and you wouldn't forgive when they asked you for mercy. And it says he turned him over to the tormentors. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. Whoa, Jesus, that's Jesus saying those things. 
So what's the standard? The standard is how Jesus forgives us. So God expects this. He expects us to totally forgive each other. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, this is going to sting a little bit, but it's, it's necessary. I, I, we've got to go here. This is, the Lord is late. It's going to sting just a little bit, but it's necessary and it's helpful. Uh, Jesus wants us to totally uh, forgive each other because Jesus totally forgave our sins and he remembers them no more. He remembers them no more. He doesn't hold our past over our head. He doesn't drag up our past and remind us of our failures. He doesn't do that. What he does is he forgives and he chooses to forget those things. He chooses to remember them no more and so should we. The standard of forgiveness is who? Jesus. Jesus is the standard of forgiveness. Now, I have said this. We've all have said this. If we haven't said it, we've heard it and agreed with it probably. I will forgive, but I don't have to forget. I've said it. I've said it to people. And I've agreed with it. But when I studied this, you know what I found out? That's not right. That's not true. That's not true. Now what, let me give you some scriptures. There's three scriptures I want to show you. Jeremiah 31, 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For, listen, I will forgive their iniquity and, circle that word, I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity, their sins, their offenses, and I will remember no more. Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So three times I've showed you how God forgives. He forgives, and then what does he do? He remembers no more. So what Jesus does, he forgives us totally, and he chooses to remember no more. This is how we must forgive others, and this is how we must forgive ourselves. Now, that's the big one right there. This is where this is really going to help you. Now, listen, I'm not saying put yourself in a bad situation where, you know, I think you understand the concept. I'm not saying go back to where someone is, uh, is going to maliciously hurt you on birth. I'm not saying that. We're talking about the standard of forgiveness, how we are to forgive. Now, you really, truly may not forget what happened, but here's the difference. You can choose to remember no more. That's the difference. When you forgive, you choose to remember no more. You may well not forget actually what happened, but you can choose to remember no more. When that person comes into your mind, you don't have to go back and choose to remember. You choose to remember no more because that's how Jesus forgave you. He forgave you of your sins, and what did he do? He chooses to remember them no more. He cast them as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the sea, and he will never, ever bring them up once he has forgiven them because he He chooses to remember no more. You that struggle with your past, this is how you forgive others. This is how you totally forgive yourself. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how God forgives, he forgives and he remembers no more. And what that scripture is saying is that God has the right to forgive you. And you have no business to tell them that he cannot do it. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You can't tell God, you can't forgive me because he has the right to do it. If you want to be forgiven, God will forgive you. So what you need to let him do, first, forgive you and he will choose to remember no more and now you must ask him for grace to forgive yourself so that you may also choose to remember your past no more. 
Don't get caught in that, in that place where you say, well, I'll, I'll never forget because you're saying, well, I am choosing to remember a grudge forever is what you're doing whenever you say that. I'll forgive, but I don't have to forget. You're saying, I, I am choosing now to hold a grudge forever. It's just a nice way of saying that. Forgive, choose to remember no more, even if you can't actually forget. Does that make sense? D.L. Moody gave a beautiful representation of how Christ forgives. And I want to read it for you. I loved it. As soon as I read it, I had to bring it to repeat to you all tonight. D.L. Moody says this. I can imagine when Christ said to that little band around him, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Peter said, Lord, do you really mean that we're to go back to Jerusalem and preach the gospel to those men who murdered you? Yes, said Christ, go. Hunt up that man that spit in my face and tell him he may still have a seat in my kingdom yet if he repents. Yes, Peter. Go find that man that made the cruel crown of thorns and placed on my brow and tell him I will have a crown ready for him when he comes into my kingdom and there will be no thorns in it. Hunt up that man that took a reed and brought it down over the cruel thorns, driving them into my brow, and tell him that I will put a scepter in his hand and he shall rule over the nations of the earth with me if he will accept salvation. Search for the man that drove the spear into my side and tell him that there is a nearer way to my heart than that. Tell him I freely forgive him and that he can be saved if he will accept salvation as a gift. Wow. That's how Jesus forgives. That's how Jesus forgives. And so God expects us also to forgive one another. The new man is a man of love. New man is a man of love. Look at verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. Charity, I like that word in a sense because it, it has the, the, the sound of action to it, doesn't it? You give to charity, and those things are always they're going about doing good. Unless it's my sister, that's a whole other thing. But, but you give to charity. We're talking about love is what it is. But, but uh, that's what the Scripture uh, I shouldn't make fun of her. She ain't even here tonight to defend herself. I'll have to tell her some other time. She's a good sister. Uh, but love is the mark of a true believer. It really is. Love is the mark of a true believer. And not only that, but it is the glue that holds the body of Christ together. We talked about that several weeks back, about uh, the Redwoods. Remember how we are all interwoven and we stand as a united front in love when the storms come. And without love, everything's going to fall apart. It is the perfect bond of unity. That's what brings everybody together. And as the people of God, we're to be united in love. You know, the, the love that God gives will make room and cultivate all of the other graces in an individual, all the other things. If you've got love from that place of love, God has a place that he can really begin to work some incredible things into your life. For the sake of, of time, I'm not gonna go over into 1 Corinthians, but chapter 13, read it on your own time. It's a whole chapter about love and tells you all about how love makes for a great place that God can begin cultivating wonderful things in your life. But the believer is marked by love. The new man is marked by love. And love should hold the highest order within the church because from it, it's going to manifest all these other graces of kindness and gentleness and tenderness and mercies and long suffering because love has those qualities within it. The love of God is that way. It forgives. It, it, is, it is gracious. It is merciful. First John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God and he that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. Not only that, but the new man should be guided by the peace of God. Look at verse 15. It says, and let, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Paul always tags that on there, doesn't he? Be thankful, by the way. The Christian life should be marked by thankfulness. 
all the time, always thankful. He always wants to add that in there. Now that word rule in this verse, it means to arbitrate. It means the umpire. Now what does the umpire do in baseball? Calls balls, strikes, says you're safe, uh, says you're out, says the ball went foul or it's fair. It calls, it calls the game. It's the arbitrator. It's the, it's the umpire guiding. And he says the peace of God should be the umpire in the body and in, and in your life. Now, I want you to think about this. There is peace with God. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this is talking about the peace of God. So we know that as believers, we always have this peace with God because we've been reconciled by his blood. We've been saved. We've been born again. So we have the peace with God. It's been made. That's a given. That's a constant. And now he also talks about the peace of God. And the peace of God is something we have as a result of fellowship and our union with God. So since we have the peace with God, now we can also have the peace of God. And the wonderful thing about the peace of God is that it also can be used to help you discern what God's will is in your life. The peace of God. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, let not your heart be troubled. What, what is he saying? Again, he's saying, let the peace of God rule. The peace that I'm giving you, let it rule. Let it be the umpire in your life. F.B. Meyer, a commentator, said this. Whenever there is a doubtful issue to be decided, and by one course your peace may be disturbed, while by another it may be maintained, Choose the things that make for peace, whether for yourselves or others. Let God's peace act as umpire. So when we have a decision, God allows us, uh, as part of uh, that work in us, he gives us a peace when we're making decisions. Uh, he'll, he'll give you peace. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you have a big decision. You want to make the right decision. And the Bible says that the peace of God should rule in your heart. So it can help determine a decision that you make. The peace of God can help you with that. So this passage in Philippians says we pray and we ask God for direction. And here's what I'll say. If there's a check in your spirit in that process where God is saying no, no, don't do that. If there's something grinding as you're bringing this to him and he says no, don't go there. Don't go there. That's the peace of God saying, no, don't do that, or yes, do that. That's the umpire saying, foul or fair. That's God saying, listen, if you keep on this course, it's not going to work well for you. We're to let the peace of God call the shot in our life, even if it's the one we don't like. So sometimes we want it so bad. Oh, God, let me do it, let me do it, let me do it. And he's grinding, saying, no, 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 don't do it. And how many times do people say, yes, 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 I'm going to do it. And it works out being very bad, bad, bad. How many friendships are ruined, business deals destroyed, and things of that nature. Uh, the list goes on and on because the peace of God was ignored. And that's what he's talking about. Now, there can be a false peace. You can deceive yourself. You can silence this and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. I have peace about it. So here's something that you use to verify that you are hearing properly from God. You take the word of God because it will never disagree with the peace of God. The word of God's not going to conflict with the peace of God. So when you say, I believe this is the right way, is anything that I'm doing in conflict with what the scripture teaches? If it is, the answer is no. Go and ask again. Think it over again. Take it to God again. Don't go there. If the scripture doesn't agree with it, the peace of God isn't there, you better not move. You better stay right where you are. Which brings me to the next part. The new man should be saturated with the word of Christ. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. See, our life with Christ began 
with the word, did it not? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how our life with Christ really begins. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So scripture is God speaking to us. It is words of life. It is washing. It is cleansing. It is the source of strength. It is hope. It is guidance. It is all that we need to live the Christian life. It can be found in the Holy Spirit inspired, God-breathed pages of scripture. It's God's revelation to man. That's what the Bible is. It's God's revelation to man. Uh, So not only should we be saturated with the word of God, but we should also be filled with the spirit of God. There's a parallel passage to this verse 16 found in Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 and 19. Listen to what it says. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So when we're saturated with the word of God and empowered with the spirit of God, then our life is going to be guided by the purpose of God. See how that works? See, the scripture-filled life is also going to be a spirit-filled life. When the Holy Spirit fills and gives life to the one who is saturated in the word, that's, that's something that he's able to do because you're obedient to him. You're taking in the scriptures. You're being obedient to what it says. And the, the life that is saturated with the word of God is also going to be a life that's walking in the spirit of God and filled with the spirit of God. And so you're going to have a life that is full of the spirit of God and the scriptures of God. And so the result of that is what? You're going to be praising God. When you're full of scripture, when you're full of the spirit of God, now you're going to be praising God. Look again at what it says in verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So when you've been saturated with the word of God, you're filled with the spirit of God, you're abounding in the love of God, then the Holy Spirit is causing you to grow in grace and in the things of God, and it's from that place that you're to begin to teach and admonish your brothers and sisters and one another in wisdom. And he tells us how we do that. We do it in the scriptures, but he also gives it in a unique way. He says, Psalms, this is how you're doing it in this passage. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Why? Because there's going to be praise rising up in this new man that's living this way. There's a heart of praise that has a melody in their heart singing to the Lord because you have something to sing about. You have something to praise God about because you know the truth of his word. You're filled with the truth of God and now you're going to praise him, not from just a place of making noise, but you're praising him from a place of truth saying, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's what we're talking about. So when we come together and we sing these songs, what are we doing? We're singing the songs of faith. We're we're singing things from the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all kinds of music. And as we sing, we're teaching. That's the positive. We're admonishing. That's the negative. And one another, as we're singing, it's on the basis of the truth that's being conveyed in the song. So the song is the vehicle by which we are teaching and admonishing one another. Now, let me say it like this. When we come to church and I'm singing in my heart to the Lord, I'm affirming to you that I believe what I'm singing. Okay? When you are singing in your heart to the Lord, you are also affirming to me that you believe what you are singing. So as we sing together, with our hearts to the Lord on the basis of truth, then we are agreeing with one another and we begin to teach one another and admonish one another. Isn't that what's happening? 
Because if I'm, as I'm singing, and I'm saying, this is what I believe, and you're seeing that, and, and you're singing too, and you're saying, well, I also believe that, then together we are singing, and we're making melody in our heart to the Lord, and what are we doing? We're affirming to one another as we sing together that there is victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. We're singing about how there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. We're singing about how God is good all the time through the darkest night his light will shine we're singing songs like it is well with my soul how does that work how does that work so as we're singing something like it is well I think of that verse that says my sins oh the bliss of that glorious thought my sins not in part but the whole and you're seeing me singing that and you're singing it with me and then you sing you're singing the other the other part it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I say, you don't? Me neither. I don't bear it anymore either. And then we sing together, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's what this passage is saying. That's what we're saying. We're teaching and admonishing one another in, in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. The vehicle is the song and the truth is the focus and we are affirming that to one another. And somebody that knows nothing about it says, well, I don't have that. And so what are you saying? You're teaching them. Now they know that truth. Now they can sing it. I gotta move along quick or you guys are gonna start throwing some tomatoes at me or something. I'm watching. The new man should do everything in Jesus' name. Look at verse 17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Here's a standard that you can guide yourself with in this. Can I claim the name of Jesus in my words and deeds? And in claiming his name in these words or deeds, am I going to bring reproach to him? So here's the standard you live by. Claim the name of Jesus and live accordingly. That's what this verse is saying. Claim the name of Jesus and live in a way that Jesus wouldn't be ashamed that you claimed his name. That's what that verse is essentially saying. Not only that, but the new way of life is going to, is going to affect every relationship. Now this section, it speaks to wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, masters. I'm, I'm going to just speak in principle where I can't relate and experience. So I'm just gonna give you the principles of this scripture and then we're gonna move on from there. Verses 18 and 19 shows a new way at home. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be a compulsive ogre. Wait. Hold on. Love your wives and be not bitter against them is what it says. Uh, now, the passage is not suggesting this superiority of man, which is what some people have tried to make out of these. They've, they've, tried to, they've tried to make it something of that nature. God doesn't make that distinction in Christ, neither should we. Galatians says in three, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there you go. All on the same level. Now, because of the state of our nation these days, I think it is helpful to mention this part. Marriage is an institution ordained by God, and it is a union that is to be to, between one man and one woman for life. And let me affirm something else, and it's from Jesus' own words. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read? that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. There's a novel idea. Two sexes from the beginning, and it hasn't changed. And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh, wherefore they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So that is God's established, uh, established uh, order. That's how he has arranged the home is one man, one woman for life in union before God. 
Not only that, but he established the order in the home. And according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, God established the husband as the leader in the home. The wives are to affirm and support that leadership as fitting in the Lord. And the husband is held to the highest of standards, if you look at it, because he is to love his wife sacrificially the way that Christ loves the church. So you're not getting off easy there. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the standard, husbands. They are to be a team, the man and wife working together as one flesh with Christ as the head. That's God's design, and that is what God will bless. Not only that, verse 20, he gives instruction to children. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. When they, when they obey their parents, they're also obeying God in that. When they're grown, they're no longer under that uh, duty to obey, but they are to continue to honor their father and mother. And the Bible says there is a blessing that comes with that long life, and it will be well with you. I think that's partly contributing to why what we know as our greatest generation has lived so long because they did, in fact, obey their parents and honor their fathers and mother, and I believe that God is showing that out in that generation. Then he gives a new way at work. Now, let me say this. The Bible does not condone slavery. Slavery is against the very message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is redemption. Jesus came to save us from our sins. That's what the Bible is about. So the Bible doesn't, people want to try to take these passages and say, oh, look at that. No, the Bible does not condone slavery. The world that Paul was writing to at the time was filled with slavery. They estimate as much as 20 to 40% of the people walking on the streets in Rome in Paul's day were slaves. That's just the nature of the world. So Paul could have went out and, and started preaching some kind of a, a social gospel. You, you realize this predated Christianity, and Christianity was small at that time, just a nucleus of believers. So uh, he's getting the gospel out. You realize that if Paul began to take on social things of that day, that it would have, it would have distorted the gospel and confused that, and you know what would have happened? Rome would have come in and took it as a social movement and squashed it immediately. It would have confused the gospel. So what does he do? Instead, he goes straight to the heart of the masters and straight to the heart of the slaves because Paul knew the issue is always the heart. That's the problem. So he goes straight to that and he begins to talk to him and he says, hey, masters, uh, hey, slaves, you're all on the same level. You're equal in God's eyes. And by the way, you have a master in heaven that you're going to answer to. That's what he's saying. So he gives a new way at work. Verse 22, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So he's saying you're the representative of God in the workplace and you're to be a good representative. You are to obey your employers. We're going to look at this. Servants are employees. Masters are employers, right? In our day, that's how we would see this. And so he's saying, employees, when you're at work, you represent God. So be a good representative. That means be obedient, obey in all things, he says. That means being on time. That means carrying yourself well. That means carrying out the duties you're expected. That means doing a good job because you're representing Christ. That means being honest. He says, uh, not with eye service. That means not just working when the boss is looking, but giving him an honest full day's work. He says not only that, but you need to do it like you're serving God, and that's why he says fearing God, because not only is your boss watching you, but God's watching you, and he's going to hold you to his standard. So we're to do everything in honest service to the Lord. Let's go ahead and read from verse 23 down to chapter 4, verse 1. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ, and he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of person. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He was saying, and Brother Chris, you can go ahead and bring a song tonight. He was saying, listen, masters, slaves, you may have not a good circumstance that you're working in. Slaves, you may be in a bad 
spot. But do your best, and instead of doing it just for this man, how about you do it for Jesus? Because it's going to make it bearable. How about in the workplace? You set a good example, and you work hard, and you do good. And remember that I'm your true master in heaven. And though you're not getting an inheritance down here as a slave, let me tell you, you're getting one from me is what Jesus is saying. You're going to have that inheritance of the son of God. You're going to have all those things that you never had as long as you're serving me as your master instead of just down here. When you serve God as your master in everything you do, whatever you set your hands to do, do it for the Lord. If you teach a class, if you sing a song, if you drive the bus, if you run a camera, if you come to church, if you are out on the job working in a factory on an assembly line, it doesn't matter where you're at or what you're doing, do it the best you can, the best way you know how. Try to do better if you can and do it for the Lord because in whatever situation you find yourself, God's the one that's keeping track and he is going to reward us according to our faithfulness. When we get to heaven, he's not going to divide us horizontally, like I said last week, by class and by what we were here. We're divided right and left, saved and lost. And for the believer, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not for our sins, but to receive the rewards for the labors that we did for Christ down here. And I think one of the most uh, saddest things on that day for all of us will be that there were missed opportunities along the way that we didn't fulfill. And so that's a charge to you tonight, Chris, as you uh, bring the song Anything that you've heard tonight, are there areas of the new man that you would like to ask God to help you in those areas? Help me in this specific, if there's some specific area you're struggling in, ask the Lord to cultivate a grace in your heart that you may be able to overcome those difficult places and look more like Jesus. If you're striking, if you're slacking off in your labors out in the world, remember you're a witness for God. Go in there and give it your best and give it your all and be that witness for Christ because the world's watching and they may very well come to you to look for the answer to find salvation. So set a good example that they would be willing to come to you and ask for the hope that lies in you. you may y'all stand with me tonight. We're going to give an invitation. If you'd like to come to the altars, you can, or you can pray right there where you are. But these are times of prayer where I'm going to give you a few minutes to say whatever you need to say to God, because surely the Lord has spoken to your heart in some way tonight. Chris, go ahead.